Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that you would give us your Holy Spirit without limit. This is what Jesus, you promised he would do if we ask. We need the Holy Spirit so that your word, which is endlessly interesting and totally relevant and life-transforming and true, would be heard by us, seen by us, believed by us, and lived by us. We need your help to come so that we might see Christ and love him more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That little phrase has been a real friend to us here at Seven Mile Road and has been sort of a principle by which we've operated and lived. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Basically what that phrase means is that when it comes to the really essential things, the things of our faith that are of paramount importance, the kinds of things that we recite, for example, when we say the creed together, though not limited to just those, when it's those kinds of things, everybody who's a follower of Jesus has to be all in. We've got to be shoulder by shoulder, locked arms, in one voice, one accord, united on all the essentials. But on lesser things things we would call non-essential, things that are no doubt important, but lesser in their weight, in their clarity in the scriptures, we would say there's liberty. Meaning, you might read something, understand something, and land here, and I might land there, and yet that doesn't mean that we don't be brothers and sisters, siblings as we do that. We can disagree and yet do so in a spirit of charity, that old English word for love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Another way we've tried to explain that same idea here at Seven Mile Road is we've used the language of there are certain things that are open-handed issues for us and other things that are closed-handed issues for us. If you've gone through our membership process, you've heard that phrase before. That's not original to us. Like everything else at Seven Mile Road, we stole it from people who are smarter than us. But it's been really helpful for us to explaining how life in a church with as many people as we are, with as many backgrounds as we are, with as many different perspectives as we have, how we might operate. So it's helped to say, there are things in the life of our church for which we're going to be open-handed. We can debate them without dividing over them. We can disagree and agree to disagree, ultimately as siblings. There's going to be so many things of theology and life and practice Some of us are going to want that on our Sundays we sing hymns, songs that are rich in theology and content. That's what matters more than anything else. And some of us are going to wish somebody at Seven Mile Road, please learn to clap and sing something with a beat, right? Some of us grew up in churches, if we grew up around a church that were liturgical, where we called and responded for two hours. And some of us grew up in churches that are charismatic. Some of us are going to homeschool our kids because we want to disciple them at home and not the, let the world disciple them. Some of us are going to send our kids to public school because we don't want them in a bubble and we want them to be salt and light. Some of us are going to land on this side of the political aisle and some of us on this side of the political aisle. In all manners of things, some of us are going to think that that dress was white and gold and others of us it was blue and black, right? It was totally white and gold, by the way. We're going to disagree on these things 
without dividing over them. We'll debate them, and ultimately we may land in different places, but still be on the same team. There's lots of things in the life of a church that are open-handed. But then there are other things. Other things for which we close our hands. Close-handed issues where we will not budge. It's the kind of thing that you and I will debate, and if we land in different places, we're on different teams. If we disagree, we're willing to divide over them. You see, because closed hands make fists. And these are the things that we're willing to fight for. These are the hills that we're willing to die for. These are the places we're willing to defend and hills we're ready to die on. And at Seven Mile Road, I'd say, like many churches, we don't have lots of hills, but we want to die for the ones we have. In all of this, what we're trying to do, though not perfectly, is we're trying to keep the minor things minor and keep the major things major. And I would like to believe that the Apostle Paul was a lot like that. I suspect Paul was in some ways the same way. So, for example, if you went to Paul in Corinth, right? If you were a Christian, a place that Paul planted a church. You were a Christian in Corinth. You might go to the Apostle Paul one day and say, Paul, listen, i got to ask you something. I go to the market and I see meat to eat. But, but I've got a problem. You see, I grew up worshipping the idols. I was in the temples, so I know where this meat comes from. They would take it to the temples, they'd offer it to their idols, obviously the idols can't eat, so they got to do something with that, and they bring it to the market and they sell it. So some Christian with a sensitive conscience would come up to Paul and say, Paul, tell me what I got to do, because I see this meat, I know it's connected to the temple and to the idol, and it would break my conscience to go anywhere near that. It would bring me right back to a world that I had left and a life I left behind. I can't even touch this thing because it's been desecrated. It's been handed over to idols. It would kill my conscience. I think the Apostle Paul would come up to that brother and say, Brother, I am so proud of your love for the Lord. Your willingness to go vegetarian rather than touch something that would break your conscience is so pleasing to God. Please don't ever eat of that. And then another Christian from the same church in Corinth would come running up to Paul two seconds later and say, Paul, I got a question. I go to the same market and I see the meat, except I know that the idols I used to worship are nothing. They don't exist. There's no real God. And in fact, I've come to see that our God is the only God there is. So they can pray to whoever they want, but the idols don't exist. And so I can receive this food with great thanksgiving. I chomped down on bacon, and I'm so thankful to God for a God who thought of something like bacon. I receive it with thanksgiving. And you know what Paul would say? Paul would say, brother, I am so proud of your maturity and your faith. The idols are nothing, and everything is to be received with great thanksgiving. You should eat with thankfulness in your heart. So you want to go, wait, Paul, which is it? Is it no meat or meat? Paul would say, yes, right? Or if you're a Christian in Rome, you would go up to Paul and say, Paul, I pull out my calendar, and I've got certain days that are marked out as special days. They're sacred days. They're holy days. They're not like the other days. We set them apart on our calendar as unto the Lord. We don't do what we do on other days. On these days, they're special and sacred, and we honor God by setting them apart to the Lord. And so what, what should we do? And Paul would say, sister... I am so pleased with your devotion to the Lord and how you treat these days with great honor and set them apart for the Lord. 
And two seconds later, a Christian in that same church in Rome would come and say, Paul, I pull out my calendar, and every day to me is the same. Every day belongs to God. There's no one day that's better than another. They're all devoted to the Lord. And I live every single one of these 365 days with weight towards God and thought towards God and devotion towards God. And Paul would say, Sister, I am so proud of how you have devoted your entire life and all its days to the Lord. You should treat them all alike to the Lord. You see how inconsistent that can feel and frustrating at times because you want to go to the Paul and say, listen, what is it? Meat or no meat? Sacred days or all days are alike? And Paul would say, isn't it great the freedom we have in the Lord? Each of us should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We should do what we do with great faith and not wound our conscience. We should live to the glory of God. You see, the Apostle Paul had lots of things for which he was open-handed. But, in our passage today, in Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10, we see the Apostle Paul close his fists. And we see here now something for Paul, for which he's going to close his fists and dig in his heels and get ready for a fight. We see in this passage a hill for which Paul is willing to die. Something he needs to defend to the point that it's of such paramount importance he will not budge, he will not compromise, he will not give in for one inch, for one second. In fact, you can see it in the passage in verse 5, he's going to literally say, we would not yield in submission for even one moment. Do you hear that? We wouldn't give a millimeter of space for a millisecond of time in yielding to this. You hear those closed fists? And so the question is, what is this issue that is of such paramount importance for Paul that he will not flex but be firm, where he will not give in or yield but hold his ground? We'll see the issue in these ten verses. Before we do, let me just remind you of the ground we've covered so far. If you're just jumping in with us, we said this letter written by the Apostle Paul, written to a bunch of churches in Galatia that Paul had planted. When Paul left this place, some troublemakers had come in and they started talking smack about Paul and smack about his message. They said, you know, Paul, he's not really one of the real apostles. You know, from Jerusalem, have you heard of that place? With guys like Peter and James and John, have you heard of those names? Well, Paul's not there like them. They were with Jesus. They saw him for three years. They got hand-selected. Paul came late to the apostle party. He's a deficient apostle with a deficient message. They basically said, of course Paul came and told you all you have to do is believe in Jesus. How easy is that? Just believe in Jesus. And of course, Paul left out all the other hard things that you'd have to do, like the laws you have to keep and the commandments you have to obey and the rituals you have to perform, but have no fear. We're here from headquarters, and we're here to fill in the gaps that Paul left out and tell you the Jesus plus other stuff that you need. If you remember, Paul spent all of chapter 1 responding to that by saying essentially, listen, my gospel is not from men nor through man, but from God. You remember last week? This is not man's gospel. The whole thing of chapter 1 is, This is not 
man's gospel. But now, he turns in chapter 2 and he's going to pivot. And he's essentially going to say, okay, having established that this is from God and by God and God's message and not man's, let me now entertain what the troublemakers are saying. They make a big deal about headquarters in Jerusalem and a big deal about the varsity apostles of Peter and James and John. Well, let me tell you about the time I was in headquarters and with them so that you'll know this is both right with God and right with his apostles. So he now begins to tell them of his encounter with Peter, James, and John and the important apostles in Jerusalem. This is 2 verse 1. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So catch up with me. He's saying, look, remember in chapter 1, as soon as Jesus showed up to me, I didn't go appeal to any man. I just headed out and then went into ministry. Now he says, when 14 years had passed, God showed up in a revelation, and so I went to Jerusalem headquarters, and I laid out there before the super apostles, the influential ones, the gospel that I proclaim. Do you notice here he says, those who seemed influential. She, he actually does that a bunch of times in this passage. He'll do it once here in two. He'll do it two times in verse six. Look at verse six. It says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He'll do the same thing again, actually. If you look down in verse 9, you can just hear it with me. He'll say, and then I went to James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars. What's this three times worth? Seemed to be influential. Seemed to be influential. Seemed to be pillars. When, when you first read it, you almost feel like Paul is taking a shot at the apostles. Like he's sort of disrespecting them or digging at them a little bit. Maybe it's his insecurity flaring up. Everyone's always talking about Peter, Peter, Peter. No one ever mentions Paul. And so he's going, oh, well, these guys seemed influential. That's actually not it at all. Paul's not disrespecting them. Paul's not against them. It's just that Paul is essentially saying, listen, I'm going to the people whom the trouble neighbors, troublemakers, they drop their names all the time. These guys are always name droppers. And I'm telling you, I went to the guys whose names they drop. I went to the guys that they cite all the time. I went to the ones who seemed influential to them. Now, two-second tangent for us. He's saying this for the sake of his argument to them. But there is something in here about what Paul believes about the gospel that's important for us. You see, he says, listen, I'm, I'm playing on your turf because their status matters so much to you. Much more than it does to me and much more than it does to God. For God shows no partiality. And if you and I believe that for a second, would you take that in? Paul is saying that Peter plus Jesus has no greater ranking in acceptance with God than Paul plus Jesus, or even you plus Jesus. That the point of this is to say, this is how sufficient Jesus is. That if you have Jesus, then not even Peter plus Jesus 
gives more ranking or more acceptance with God than you plus Jesus. You see, it's almost like if I gave you infinity plus 10 or infinity plus 10 million and asked you which one is more, the point is as long as you have infinity, you have everything you can have and nothing more. You can't add to Jesus to the point that you gain no more acceptance with God if you're Peter, the rock on which whom the entire church was built, whom Jesus saw with his eyes, the greatest of all the apostles, and lowly you. If you've got Jesus, you can gain no more acceptance with God because God shows no partiality. Our acceptance with God is squarely based on Jesus Christ. Do you have him? then you rank as high as you need to in the presence of God. He says, the troublemakers, however, didn't see any of that. For them, status meant everything. And so Paul essentially says, listen, I got into a closed room at headquarters with the varsity apostles. And I want you to hear what he says. Look again at verse 2. I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Listen to what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying, listen, I laid out my gospel in front of the apostles, the varsity ones, to make sure that I was in the right, to double check my work, to proofread over what I was saying, to ensure that there was no errors just in case I got it wrong. That's not why he's saying he laid out the gospel. That's not why he's saying to make sure I wasn't running in vain. You know, in chapter 1, he just finished saying, this is not man's gospel. To the point he literally said, even if an angel from heaven should come and say something different, I wouldn't budge because this is God's gospel. And so he doesn't need man's approval for God's message. So he didn't lay out before them this gospel he had been proclaiming for 14 years just in case he got it wrong for the last decade or so. No, then why does he lay out this gospel in front of them? He says, I wanted to make sure that I had not been running or was not now running in vain. Meaning this, he went to those apostles and he said, here's what I tell the Gentiles. And he laid out for them, I tell the Gentiles that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah, the one who had died and risen again for our sins. And then I tell these Gentiles, but he didn't come just to be the Jews' Messiah. He came to be the world's Lord. And I tell the Corinthians and the Galatians and the Philippians and all of them, I tell them that if they have Jesus, they can be in on God's family and they don't need anything else. I tell them that if they trust in Jesus Christ, now there is no more Jew or Gentile. Those old divisions are gone. They can come in and be a part of God's people. And I don't tell them anything else. I don't tell them that they have to keep the Sabbath. I don't tell them that they have to eat certain foods. I don't tell them that they have to be circumcised. I tell them Jesus plus nothing. And then he's saying, and brothers, I'm laying this out before you because troublemakers are coming. And if you don't stand united with me right now, if you don't see that this is a hill worth defending and dying on, and if you separate from me and we become two teams where we needed to stand shoulder by shoulder and be one, then I'm telling you I've got converts in all those cities that are going to be led astray into a different gospel and that are going to be confused into a Jesus plus something and 14 years of my work will be in vain. 
So I'm here to ask you, will you take a side with me on this? Will you stand with me in the gospel on this? Because in essentials, we need unity. And so the question is, what will headquarters say? And what will the pillars respond? Because you see, that meeting in Jerusalem was of paramount importance as to which direction Christianity would go. Whether this would be one solid, unified message. And Paul, in order to make sure that this wasn't some hypothetical thing about some Gentiles way out there. Do you notice in verse 1 and 2? He says, when I went to Jerusalem, I brought Barnabas and Titus with me, who is a Greek. Why did Paul bring Titus to that meeting? Because he doesn't want this just to be a hypothetical thing. He's saying, literally, here's exhibit A of what I'm talking about. What should we do with this brother right here? You tell me, this brother believed in the gospel that I preached. He's ready to partner with me in ministry. Tell me, is he a Christian like the rest of us? Does he belong to God just like the rest of us? Or is there something else this brother has to do? Is he sort of part A but not fully part B? Tell me, what do we do with Titus? Do you see that? Exhibit A, what will the apostles in Jerusalem say about Titus? And then he says in verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Do you hear what he's saying to the Galatians? He's saying, listen, I was in headquarters with the pillars. And if ever there was a moment for them to tell me my gospel was deficient, if there was ever a moment for them to tell me Jesus plus something, it was then and there Titus was standing right in front of them. But they didn't say a word. They didn't force him to be circumcised. In fact, they didn't add anything to what I had proclaimed. Listen to how he continues in verses 6. Not only did they not force him to be circumcised, he says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, verse 7, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews, for the same God, verse 8, who works through Peter is working through me, verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You hear what he's saying? Brothers in Galatia, sisters in Galatia, no matter what they've come telling you, I'm telling you I was there and with the people they dropped names of. And they added nothing to me. Titus was standing there. They didn't tell him to be circumcised. In fact, they didn't even play this as Switzerland, where they just stayed neutral. They extended their right hand to me and gave me their hand of fellowship, saying, Brother Paul, we're one team. Meaning, the others are not, and we are. They joined hand with me, united on the essentials. They verified that everything I've been telling you is true. They didn't say a word about circumcision. In fact, the only time circumcision even came up was what he says in verse 4. The only reason it came up was verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in 
who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You hear what he says? The only reason circumcision came up was because of some false brothers. Literally the word is fake siblings. Some fake siblings came into the room and they did what the troublemakers are trying to do. They tried to add something to Jesus. But then listen to how strong Paul's language is. He says, if we gave in for a second, listen, if we let Titus be circumcised, we would have been giving up into slavery and we would have not preserved the truth of the gospel so that the entire gospel message would have been in jeopardy. Samar wrote, I want, I want to ask you, I know circumcision seems so far removed and so distant from us, but do you see how serious Paul is? He's literally saying, if we gave in and let Titus be circumcised, we would have traded our freedom for slavery, we would have traded the truth of the gospel and put the whole thing at jeopardy so that we could not yield, not budge, not flex for one second. Okay, we said we could find in this passage the hill that for Paul was worth dying on. And perhaps we've found it here. Perhaps we'd say circumcision is a hill worth dying on. Do you hear him say it? If we gave in about Titus, we would have given ourselves over to slavery, traded in the truth of the gospel, everything would have been ruined. We couldn't yield in submission for even one moment. So maybe circumcision is the hill that is worth dying on. All right, keep that in mind and flip with me for a second to Acts 16. It's a different passage. It's not Titus, but Paul's going to talk about a different partner of his. And listen to what it says in Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was also a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Listen to this. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. If you paid attention, tell me, isn't that just crazy what you just read? If you're tracking, we just said, he said to give in for even a second and let Titus be circumcised, was to give up our freedom, go into slavery, abandon the gospel. And that same Paul, in Acts 16, took Timothy and had him circumcised, it says literally, because of the Jews that were in those places. How does that work? How is it that if we circumcise Titus, we've given up the gospel? And then this same man circumcises Timothy. In fact, if you really want your head to spin, Look again at 16 verse 4, and it'll say, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observe, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles who were in Jerusalem. What's the decisions? You hear that? They went from city to city, giving the decisions that the apostles had reached. What's the decision? Well, if you just flip back one page from Acts 16 to Acts 15, you'd read about this thing called the Jerusalem Council, 
where literally all the apostles got together in Jerusalem and said, tell all the Gentiles they don't have to be circumcised. So you follow what just happened? He grabs Timothy and gets him circumcised on his way to all the cities to tell them the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. How does that make sense? What gives? He has Timothy circumcised on his way to tell everybody the apostles said you don't have to be circumcised. How does that work? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, my wife Shina, whenever she gets frustrated at me, she always says, Ajay, you are so consistently inconsistent. Right? Consistently inconsistent. It's like you're adamant about something, like it's a rule, and then the next thing, it doesn't matter anymore. And I finally realized what I'm going to say back. You mean like the Apostle Paul, right? <laughs> how is she going to win that argument ever again? Right? Isn't that, isn't that, how does he do this? Maddening. He just said if we yielded for one second in submission as it relates to Titus, we would have abandoned the gospel. And then he gets Timothy circumcised on his way to the Jews to tell the cities you don't have to get circumcised. How does that work? At the very least, it means that maybe we need to rethink our sentence. And maybe circumcision isn't the hill that Paul is willing to die on. Maybe we need to leave it blank for a second because after all, he's willing to get Timothy circumcised. So maybe it's something else. You see, what's the difference between Timothy and Titus? Here's what I think it is. You see, if it's Titus, and you're going to say Jesus plus circumcision is how you become a Christian, if you're going to say you have to become Jewish before you become Christian, you have to do some work of the law, keep some command to be accepted by God or belong to His people, then Paul would say, over my dead body. Here's my flag on this hill. I'm not budging for a second because the gospel of Jesus is at stake. We get in to God through Jesus plus nothing. And if you're going to dilute that, you're going to compromise that, you're going to edit that gospel in any way, I will not budge even for a second. Don't go near Titus. But if you're not saying any of that, and I'm heading out to a bunch of cities where we're going to go into synagogue after synagogue after synagogue, and you can't even enter a synagogue if you're not circumcised, and Timothy's right next to me, and his ability to preach the gospel with me in those synagogues requires his circumcision, then circumcise away. No problem. You see, for Paul, his whole point is this. If you're going to insist on Jesus plus something to get the gospel then you've abandoned the gospel and we will not budge. But, but, if the gospel's not at stake and there's no compromise or sin, then we will flex all day to see the gospel advanced. See, that's the difference. If the gospel's at stake, we will not budge because we will not abandon it. But if mission can advance, then we'll flex all day. You see, Underneath this, it can feel inconsistent. You do this in this place and not this in that place. But underneath that superficial inconsistency is a firm, consistent commitment to the gospel, to seeing it preserved and to seeing it spread. See, for Paul, either way, the point is Jesus. If it's Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel, I will not budge. But if Jesus can be advanced, then I will flex all day long. Either way, Jesus and his gospel is the hill. 
We might say it this way. Seeing the gospel preserved and spread is a hill worth dying on. Samarod, seeing the gospel preserved and spread is a hill worth dying on. Meaning for us, if there's ever a pressure on us from our world to adapt our gospel, and you'll feel it to conform the rough edges of this gospel, to, to trim it down a little bit because it's too hard and too offensive, then you and I need to put on that hill our flag and say, we will not budge for one second because we will not abandon the gospel. No matter what pressure the culture puts on us, no matter what labels they say of us, we must hold unwaveringly to the gospel. But at the same time, if you've begun to import or export a Jesus plus your way of doing something, your way of seeing something kind of gospel, then you will hinder the advance of the gospel and you'll, you'll ruin what the gospel is. Either way, we want to say seeing the gospel preserved and spread is a hill worth dying on. Let me say one last thing and we'll be done. Again, I want to say this can all feel like something from far away from long ago. But I, I read something, you know, this, this whole question of circumcision seemed like such a big deal to them where it's not to us. And one person said it this way, the reason it's not a big deal for us is because Paul won the argument. Because otherwise it would be a really big deal. The only reason it's not such a big deal is because Paul defended that hill. You see, what was at stake was whether Christianity would be tied to some ethnicity that you have to jump into before you become Christian. And from the hour Christianity was born, it was always born to be for all people. If circumcision got tied into Jesus, then it essentially said that you would have to become Jewish to become Christian. And this entire movement would be something tied to an ethnic faith. And that's not what Christianity has ever been. For example, our Muslim friends would tell us that the revelation of Allah was given in one language. You can translate it all you want, but if you want to get closest accent, access to the actual words of God, you've got to learn Arabic to get to what Allah says. And so you've got to step in and learn that language to really have access. But listen, the Christian claim has been, from the hour it was first spoken or first written down, it was translated in its original Meaning Jesus spoke in Aramaic and from the hour it was first written, it was written in Greek because the gospel is always to be for all people. In fact, we said this in the book of Acts. Do you remember when the Spirit of God comes down at Pentecost and the believers are first filled with the Spirit and they open their mouths and tongues to proclaim the works of Jesus? What language did they speak in in that first hour? When the gospel was first proclaimed for the first time ever after being filled with the Spirit, what language did they speak in? It wasn't in Aramaic, and it wasn't in Hebrew, and it wasn't in Greek, and it wasn't in English, as if America owns Christianity. It was all languages spoken at the same time, so that from the hour it was born, this gospel is for all people, in all cultures, everywhere. One gospel expressed around the world in every kind of cultural expression you can imagine. That's what Paul was willing to die on and die for, to ensure that this good news could go everywhere at the same time. So, this is a hill, Seven Mile Road, worth dying on. 
seeing the gospel preserved, and seeing the gospel spread. Let's pray together. God, we ask and pray that you would make us worthy of these words in how we live our lives. We ask, O Lord, that no matter what pressures come from the outside, you might help us to not compromise the good news of Jesus Christ. You might help us not to trim it down, edit it away, change its rough edges to make it more appealing. We pray that the offensive word that we're sinners and that God had to die and rise again to save us would be held for all generations. We pray, O Lord, that we would not yield in one moment in submission in editing the gospel. But at the same time, Lord, we pray that there would be nothing about us that imports our way of seeing things or doing things and adds a burden to the gospel that would hinder its advance to the peoples we're called to, to the world we're sent to. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to be wise in our engagement with the world where there is no compromise and no sin. We might flex in every way possible to see the gospel advance. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a church that in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime, and in the years to come, would be committed to holding gospel truth with firmness and adapting missional practice with great flexibility. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.